Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 149. It's titled, Do You Have Enough to Retire? I recently received an email from a listener and a member of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. She is 63 and hasn't worked in three years and very much enjoys not working, but she's afraid to admit she's retired. She was previously a director of a medical practice and has a net worth of over a million dollars, including $375,000 in home equity and cash and investments of $970,000. She has no debt and lives on about $40,000 per year. She's not yet taken Social Security because, after all, she admits she's not retired, but she is in a situation where she just loves not being able to work. She loves the freedom she has in this new life. She said about a year ago, she met, she read a lot of books and articles about investing and gave notice that she was going to terminate her longtime financial advisor and shifted the money out. She was paying him over 1%, but moved the assets back to Vanguard, where she allocated investments among some stock and bond mutual funds, which we'll, we'll share in a minute. Now, this listener asked me, she, she was more than willing to have me talk about her on, on the show and kind of give some, just sort of use her as an example. I can't give investment advice, as, as you know, as we talked about last week, but we can, in a public setting, share her as an example, give some guidance for how somebody in, in that situation can, can sort of decide whether they have enough to retire. And in her case, get over a particular point she's at right now where she's stuck. She, after she moved the assets over, this, this, I think it was this past summer, she said the election came along, along and she realized she was being emotional. But she believed the many predictions that the markets would react badly to a Trump victory. Her plan was to take some money out of stocks about $200,000 or 20% of her portfolio, which she did, and then put it right back the next day after Hillary won. She writes, when Trump won, I just froze. The world no longer made sense. Besides the mistake with the stocks, I made a second mistake and put three quarters of the sale into mostly intermediate term bond funds. Now, we'll look in a few minutes whether... The, that that was actually a mistake. But the reality is she is afraid to make a move. And part of it is because it's this huge tight psychological hurdle. When we are retired or, or acting like we're retired but won't admit they're retired, because suddenly we don't have a steady stream of employment income. And and I saw this when I quit my job and, and called myself retired. Just would there be enough? Do I have enough 
to retire. And, and we all face that when it comes down to it. So we're going to go through the steps of how to figure that out and how to, more importantly, overcome this, this feeling of being frozen in place, not sure what to do, afraid to make any changes to our investment portfolio because suddenly it's not a portfolio that is for our future retirement. It's a portfolio that we depend upon for our day-to-day living expenses. Now, the starting point in her situation, she has this pool of assets, is to figure out what she can earn investing. What's a reasonable rate of return on her portfolio? How, how much could that portfolio generate in terms of income and total return over, let's say, a 10-year period of time? And she's used the tools on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, hopefully to help her do that. I know she's used some of the tools, but we're going to kind of walk through the process. And on that note, I, I, the Money for the Rest of Us Hub has been closed to new members since December. I'll be reopening that in April for new enrollment. enrollment. And if you're not on the waiting list or on the notification list, go to moneyfortherestofushub.com on the homepage, click Learn More, more, and it'll bring up a, a box that you can put your email in, and you'll be the first to know when it reopens. But her portfolio, she says so she moved it over to Vanguard. She put 32% in, in U.S. stocks. It's in the Vanguard Total U.S. Stock Fund, Admiral, Admiral Shares. And, and she, she listed out the SEC yields of, of all the funds and the expense ratios. And so, like I said, she's, she's very, very smart when it comes to investing. In fact, she got into a discussion with her advisor who was using time-weighted returns and mentioned how Vanguard, for in terms of calculating personal performance, uses a dollar-weighted return. She knew what they both were and, and had this discussion with the advisor. So she, she knows her stuff, but she's still sort of frozen in place. So she's about 32% in stocks and 59% in bond funds. It's, it's spread between four different funds, it's the Vanguard Total Bond Fund, Admiral Shares, the Vanguard Intermediate Term Investment Grade Bond Fund, Admiral Shares, Vanguard Short Term Investment Grade Bond Fund, and then she's got a little bit with the Fidelity Baird Core Plus Fund from a her retirement plan for her former employer. But she knew the SEC yield of each of those funds. She knew what the duration was, and that's where she feels like, well, maybe she made a mistake because... Collectively, her funds yield 2.5% and have a duration, weighted average duration of 5.2 years. And so she's looking at a lot of the principles that we've talked about on this show as well as on, on the hub regarding sort of balancing the yield you're getting with the duration because duration measures the interest rate sensitivity of a bond fund. And so if interest rates... The 10-year treasury right now is about 2.6%. If that goes up one percentage points, a a bond portfolio with a 5.2-year duration will have a price decline of about 5% or 5.2%. And then that'll be obviously be offset by the income, but she's sort of looking at that risk. And we're kind of at a precipice in the sense that is a secular bear market in bonds about to begin. And it's something that that I've done some episodes on that in terms of what to do when interest rates rise. But we're, we're sort of getting to that point, particularly over the last few weeks. For example, Bill Gross, who formerly of PIMCO, now with Janus, his, his line in the sand, 
and I'm not big on line in the sands, but his line in the sand for the start of a secular bear market. And we've been in a secular bull market for bonds really since the early 80s. So it's been a really, really long time. His line in the sand is about 2.6%. So we're right there. Jeffrey Gunlack of Double Line Funds, he says 3%. So once the 10-year treasury goes above 3%, that's the start of a secular bear market. Ned Davis Research, who I use, they, they say 2.72%. Now, it, it's hard to say. I can tell you one thing that has not occurred yet that at least I'm looking at in terms of has a secular bear market and bond started is what are investors doing? Are they pulling money out of bond funds? And they're not. The most recent week that, that I have data for shows, this is from Ned Davis, inflows into bond ETFs and mutual funds in the U.S. was $9 billion dollars. The average inflow going back a number of years is about $3 billion inflow a year. So we're still three times that. We're not seeing outflows. Once we start seeing consistent weekly outflows from bond funds, that's a potential sign that a secular bear market in bonds is, is going to begin. And But that that's not a given. And that's the thing. I did an episode two years ago on this topic, and, and we don't. No, but we have to kind of weigh the risk versus the reward. And now we're in a situation, it, it does appear, when this, the day this episode is released, on a Wednesday, the, the U.S. Federal Reserve is, is meeting. All indications is they will again raise the short-term policy rate to 0.25%. And so you're starting to get some a little more attractive yields when it comes to, to shorter-term bond funds. In fact, we made a change on the model portfolios on on the hub th- this past week in terms of shifting assets out of an intermediate-term bond fund and moving them to a short-term bond fund, the iShares Short Maturity Bond ETF. That has a, that has a yield, an SEC yield, of about 1.4% versus a duration of about a half a year. You compare that to the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF, that has a yield of around 2.5% and a duration close to 6 So what's going to happen if rates rise 1%? Well, that short-term bond fund would potentially see a price decline of a half percentage point, but it's yielding 1.5%. The, the Vanguard Total Bond Market Fund is yielding 2.5%. So if it rates go up with a duration of six, it will fall in price by six percentage points, and then you'll get the two and a half percent income. So that that's a net loss of three and a half percent. What happens if rates go up by two percentage points? And so that that's when she talks about making a mistake. She's thinking, well, maybe I'm taking too much duration risk. Now that that's an interesting point because a and Mark, a member of the, of the hub, we posted in the forum after we made these changes to the model portfolio, his question was, well, is it even worth making the change? He said he, under, he understands the, 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 the particular fund that we moved from has a duration of, of four year, years. It's yielding, this is a double-line fund, it's yielding about 3.6%. And, and he's sort of saying, is it, is it worth it? Because I know my time horizon is much larger, longer. 10-year time horizon... Even though the price, you'll have a price decline 
with an intermediate term bond fund, eventually you'll make up those losses with the higher income. And that's why I've said repeatedly, the best estimate for a long-term return for a bond fund is, is its current SEC yield, which is its yield to maturity, less expenses. And other countries should have very similar, but we're looking at the yield to maturity, less the, the, the management fee for a particular fund and ETF. And so his question is, and in his case, probably not worth it. For his longer-term assets, he's fine keeping it in an intermediate-term bond fund, is willing to ride through these losses, because in the end, 10 years, he's going to outperform cash, because he'll, he'll be yielding, getting that yield. His annualized return will, will equal pretty close to that starting yield to maturity, or SEC yield, of 3.5%. Yesterday, I did something new. I did a Facebook live session, live video, on the Money for the Rest of Us Facebook page. And one of the questions on there was uh, from a different mark, where he says, in this current environment of increasing interest rates, do you still see bonds as an important part of retirement portfolio? It seems that bonds and bond funds have been exhibiting some volatility lately, which makes me wonder whether it's better off to keep money in cash, CDs or look for alternative investments, private opportunity, equity opportunities, or real estate. The name of the game is diversification. I guess my question is whether bonds or the, have a place in a portfolio in terms of diversification. I do think bonds still have a place. You just have to manage the risk and understand your time frame. The, the primary reason to have bonds in your portfolio is the income stream. And, and as short-term rates go up, cash does become more attractive, and you have to measure that against other opportunities in the bond space, always looking at the duration, the sensitivity to interest rates, as well as balancing that with the yield. And what is your time frame? Are you willing to suffer some price decline in the near term in order to make it up eventually and earn those higher yield to maturities? Having said all that, a secular bear market in bonds is not guaranteed. There are those that, that think otherwise. For example, Lacey Hunt and Van Hoisington of Hoisington Asset Management in their quarterly letter, year-end letter, gave reasons why they don't believe that a secular bear market in bonds is starting. And they, they definitely bet either one way or the other. They, they own long-duration, long bonds, or they own cash. And they still own long-duration bonds because they believe there's a debt overhang that will impede economic growth. They believe that demographic trends, slowing demographic trends, will impede economic growth. And they believe much of the pent-up demand has been satiated in terms of consumers have have bought their big-ticket items. They've bought their cars. They've bought their washing machines. And so they're continuing to expect interest rates to fall. We don't know. We have to manage the risk. We don't know what's going to happen. And and certainly now's the time to sort of look at it. Look at what is the duration of of your bond portfolio, compare it to the SEC yield or yield to maturity. That's what this particular listener is doing. That is, she knows what her bond portfolio is. She just needs to know what to do next. Now, I'll probably do some more Facebook Live sessions. That was kind of fun, short, casual. If you're not following money for the rest of us on the Facebook page, go ahead and do that. And you'll be notified next time I put up a video. But back to this listener, what we need to figure out is what's her expected return on her current portfolio, and can she improve that? How does that compare to her spend rate? What's the gap between those two so we know how much she will or how long her money potentially could last in retirement? Before we do that, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. 
Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. So what can this listener expect to earn on her portfolio over the next decade? She has 32% in stocks, 59% in bonds, about 9% in cash. Well, we already talked about her bond portfolio has a starting yield of maturity of 2.5%. So we got that. If we assume roughly a 0.8% return on cash, maybe 1%, then we need an estimate for stocks. And one of the things that I do is I, I come up with Asset allocation assumptions, what we called in the business when I was an institutional advisor, capital market assumptions. For stocks, U.S. stocks, I'm assuming 5.4%, and that's based on a 2% dividend yield. Pretty high valuations for U.S. stocks right now, and then an estimate for earnings growth, 5.4% with a range of return between 3.5% and 7%. And that's one of the tools I mentioned that's on Money for the Rest of Us Hub in terms of being able to, to get that. Now, if you put those all together, we get an estimated return for her overall portfolio of about 3.3%, with a range of 2.6 and 3.7. Now, that's assuming then, so that's a reasonable return. It's not going to happen every single year. In fact, with that asset allocation she has, There's an estimated maximum drawdown, which is sort of the worst case scenario over about an 18-month period of around a 19% decline. So that's kind of the risk she's taking. The overall stock market, if you're 100% stocks, you need to be prepared for up to a 60% decline. But with only about a third of her assets and stocks, that she's kind of at the the 19% range. Now, when we look at what she's spending then, she's spending 4.1%. So $40,000 divided by 970000 is 4.1%. And so we compare the, the 
6.2% return. Want to back out an inflation assumption, so we'll assume 2.5%. Her real expected return over the next decade is 0.8%. And the difference between the 0.8% real return and the the 4.1% spending rate is negative 3.4%. That's that's her financial gap. And, and back in episode 33, and again in episode 119, I talked about the mind the gap spreadsheet. So this is a simple analysis where you look at what's your spending rate, what are you earning on your portfolio, what is the inflation rate, and based on those three numbers, what how long will your money last? And I did the analysis with her with her data, and about 26 years is what she can expect her portfolio to last given those assumptions. Now, hopefully you've had the Mind the Gap spreadsheet. If not, if you're a U.S.-based listener, text the word SAVINGS, S-A-V-I-N-G-S, to the number 44222, and you'll get it sent to you immediately. And you'll also sign up for my Insider's Guide. Or if you are, you can go to moneyfortherestofus.net, it's episode one. We're, we're at 149, and, and you'll find, you'll, you click the box there, and you'll also get that. So, so do, if you haven't gone through that exercise, it's pretty straightforward. This particular listener likes that type of analysis. She's done Monte Carlo analysis, which is basically a similar approach where you look at your spending, you look at your portfolio, and it runs a number, number, a thousand different scenarios. I used to do this at my, at my old firm when we were doing asset allocations for institutions, just trying to figure out. For this, this out, but I, I like the simplicity uh, of the mine the gap spreadsheet. Recognizing though that you're not going to get three point two percent in her case every single year, you can have a loss. So if you if she lost nineteen percent next year, then and then earn you know upwards over four percent over the next twenty three years, the average return or her annualized return would still be that three point two percent. But then her assets would only last around 23 years instead of 26. And so that the sequence of return risk is there. But just having a starting point, because the idea is, all right, if, with these assumptions, a 3.2% return, about a 4% spending rate, 4.1% spending rate, her overall allocation will last 23 years. That's where she starts. Now, how or 26 years, how can we prove that? Because that, that'll only take her to age 89. She really needs to prepare for the mid-90s or to live into her mid-90s. And there's really two ways to do that. You got to narrow that gap. You narrow that gap by increasing the expected return or by reducing the spending. Now, in her case, she's fortunate. She's not taken Social Security yet. And if she decides to take that now, Let's assume it's about an $18,000 annual payment that you'll get that's then indexed to inflation. Well, you back that out of the $40,000, and then she is only spending $22,000 per year and or pulling that. So it's about 2.3%. And again, using that Mind the Gap spreadsheet, that means it'll last 50 years. So that that's an incredible extension based on Social Security. And she's mentioned she's going to do the Mind the Gap analysis and put different ages for taking Social Security, taking it now versus age 67 versus 70. But taking it now will actually, if she feels frozen or or afraid to make a move on her portfolio, if she took it now, 
that would relieve some of the pressure because she'd have some income in. She, she'd know that I'm only pulling $22,000 a year, at least in my first year, out of my portfolio. Then you would adjust that in the next year, increase it by the rate of inflation. But that's all you're spending, $22,000 out of a $970,000 portfolio. That's not much. And that should give you the confidence to be willing to make changes to a portfolio, to, to make some, some adaption. But the reality is she can retire. She is retired. She has enough to retire. Now, she could improve her expected return. She's in U.S. stocks, all U.S. stocks. She ought to have exposure to non-U.S. stocks. Non-U.S. stocks have higher expected return because their dividend yields are higher and their valuations are lower. So moving into using global stocks, the global stock market is about half U.S., half non-U.S. Just moving to a global stock fund, Vanguard, VT, I think is the ticker, is, is an example of a global stock fund, and she'll get some benefit there. She could add some additional income strategies, such as master limited partnership, investment in energy infrastructure, or bank loans, some floating rate non-investment grade bonds. There's things that she could do, but do it in, in incremental amounts, so she can kind of move in slowly, dollar cost average into that. And and just adding, for example, 5% in MLPs, 5% in bank loans, and moving to global stocks would increase her expected return on her portfolio up to 3.7%. This is a pretty conservative portfolio. Now, granted, these are conservative asset allocation assumptions, but I can tell you 5.4% nominal expected return on stocks is, I think, it's a good, solid expectation, but there are certainly experts out there, such as Research Affiliates is an example. They do estimated 10-year returns. GMO does seven-year expected returns. Their their expected real returns are are much lower, closer to pretty much zero. It's not negative for U.S. stocks over the next seven to 10 years. I'm a little higher than that, but that's why we kind of go through this analysis and try to build in a margin of safety if returns come in a little lower, and have multiple portfolio drivers in the portfolio. Now, speaking of portfolio drivers and diversification, one of the questions I often get is, why, why not small cap stocks? Small company, U.S. equity, for example. Why don't you have assumptions for small company stocks on, on the hub, for example? Because there, the assumptions are, are really assuming all cap, so global all cap portfolio. I, do, I used to use small cap all the time. Back, back in the day, in fact, I was talking to one of my former associates at my old investment firm. It was like magic. We would get this new client. This would have been in, in the mid to late 90s, and, and they wouldn't have any small company stocks. They wouldn't have any international stocks. We'd do an asset allocation. We'd say, hey, look, you had small cap. Your returns are higher because our assumptions assumed higher returns for small company stocks. That's not where we're at today. In order to get higher returns for small company stocks over a large company, you need a couple things. You either need lower valuations or you need faster earnings growth. We have neither of those today. When we look at U.S. small company stocks, the median price-to-earnings ratio, so the middle, look at the universe of small company stocks, let's say the Russell 2000, this particular universe is from Ned Davis, median price-to-earnings ratio is 29.05. That compares to 24.2 for the S&P 500. Now, you might say, well, earnings growth, they, they get the small cap should have a premium. They should have a premium because they grow faster. 
Expected earnings growth for small company stocks over the next year is 7.9% compared to 8.6% for large company stocks. This is in the U.S. And and that 29 average P.E., median P.E., compares to its historical average going back to 1981 uh, of 23. And so I don't see any reason, given how tightly correlated small company stocks are to large company stocks. The correlation is about 0.85, which means they move pretty closely together. So there's not a huge diversification benefit. So the main reason to add it is if you can get higher returns. And if, if valuations are higher and earnings growth is, is expected to be lower, that's not a recipe for, for higher returns. At some point, it'll make sense to move back heavily into small company stocks. And the same for value. Value stocks right now Median small cap value P.E. is 21.5 versus its average of 15.8. Median price to earnings ratio for all cap value is 21.1 versus 15.5 going back to 1981. So there's not an advantage right now. Like historically, like the academic research says, to invest in small cap investments, small cap value, because you want to earn a return premium for doing so. But if the valuations are above average and the earnings growth isn't there, then you're not going to get that return premium. So back to this listener. You have enough money to retire. You're enjoying not working. Perhaps in a few years, you'll, you'll come up with a small you know, lifestyle business and, and start creating some income. You could take Social Security now if you want. I want you to sort of do that analysis and make small incremental steps to your portfolio. Your portfolio isn't broker right now. You could do better by having a little more allocation to global stocks, diversify it, perhaps adding some income strategy. You could take baby steps, sort of kind of move in over time. But generally, even if you kept your current portfolio and your current spending rate, you'd be fine as long as you perhaps, well, eventually take Social Security, which you will, and it will be there for you. You'll be fine. Also, you might do some mental accounting in the sense of retirement buckets. Set aside, for example, your first two to three years of spending, and that's your cash allocation, and then you can invest the rest. Sometimes that helps investors or retirees sort of manage the, they, they feel a little more confident taking more risk with the rest of the portfolio because they've set aside some cash. And, and relax. You're going to be retired a long time. It takes some time to get used to it. Keep learning about investing, finding virtual mentors. Learn about other things, obviously, but just relax. You'll get used to the fact that you're living off your portfolio and it's being supplemented with with other income. And and you're very, very fortunate because you've been a very diligent saver and you have the assets to retire. Most of us, most people aren't going to have that level of assets. So you're in a very good position. But if you have less than that, and you're trying to figure out whether you can retire or not, you want to go through the same exercise. What's a reasonable expected return in your portfolio? What is, this, what is that return? What is the spending rate? And, and how does it care? What's the gap? you got to mine the gap. What's the financial gap? Use the Mind the Gap spreadsheet that uh, you can find at moneyfortherestofus.net, episode 149, or text the word insider, or I'm sorry, text the word savings to the number 44. Two two two. You can also text the word insider and, and you'll also get that same thing. You'll get the spreadsheet in, in your first email. And so that's episode 149. Do the analysis. See 
go through the steps. We have to be objective here and, and, and we can't put our heads in the sand and consider, is now the time to retire? If it's not, then maybe you need to work a few years, but yet we least need to do the analysis to figure out, do we have enough or do we need more? Everything I share with you in this episode has been for general education only. I'm not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.